Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 17th, 2021, and my guest is neuroscientist Emiliana Simon-Thomas, the science director of the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, where she oversees its fellowship program, the Expanding Gratitude Project, and is a co-instructor of the center's Science of Happiness online course. Emiliana, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. So glad to be here, Russ. Tough question to start with. How can there be a science of happiness? Uh, you're, you're a real scientist. I'm not, you know, I'm a pretend one. I'm a social scientist. As a real scientist, how, how can there be one, a science of happiness? Yeah, I mean, an important question and one that I ask myself all the time. You know, how can we know this ephemeral sort of quality of our lives that is really hard to pinpoint? How do we measure it? How do we capture the factors that contribute to it. Um, Some might call these determinants or constituents. You'll hear all these terms sort of bandied around in the science of happiness. And how do we know what it is right in the moment or what it is in this more general sense? And how can we understand the outcomes or the advantages or benefits or perhaps even, God forbid, the the disadvantages of, of being a person who you might call very happy or who would score high on the sort of more technical term for happiness in the sciences is well-being, right? We call ourselves high and subjective well-being really means the same thing as being high in happiness. So what are the benefits of that? What are the outcomes? What are the consequences? All of these are, are empirical questions that we can try to understand. Um, there are many different disciplines who are working on understanding the science of happiness and contributing meaningfully to it. Um, we start with trying to conceptualize the idea itself first. Like, what is it? What is happiness? Um, again, we call this subjective well-being in, in psychology circles and um, then try to figure out what factors contribute to it most systematically and most reliably, and, and what are the outcomes that, that are associated with it. Um, it's an emerging field. I will, I will honor that. And, th- and I say that only speaking of the science, right? Humans have been interested in happiness or well-being or the good life or thriving or flourishing for centuries, right? Millennia. Well, and the humanities have been invested in trying to understand happiness and characterize it. Scientists are just a little bit late to the parade, but um, the benefit of having a science is that it feels a little bit more universal and secular than some of the other disciplines or traditions that speak of happiness. The risk, of course, is what Hayek called scientism, uh, the trappings of science uh, without its reliability. Do you think there's anything we've learned reliably about happiness from this large interdisciplinary effort that you're referring to? I think that we know 
with a lot of confidence that being a happier person is associated with longevity, with uh, more professional and academic success, with um, lesser vulnerability to cardiovascular disease and any number of, of psychological challenges. Um, and again, this is sort of the outcome space, right? How can we measure somebody's level of subjective well-being and then track them for over a longitudinal window, so over time, and then um, measure or, or examine what the consequences are? Like, what are the results of being somebody who is higher in happiness? And, and those that I listed, they, they're found time and time again, right? People who are happier just do better in life. As you say, it, those are associations. I notice you're careful to use that word. Uh, we don't know with which direction causation runs, right? It could be that successful people, people in good health and so on are happier, not that the happiness causes those things, right? It just, there's a correlation there. We don't know which, where the causation is. Well, you would, you would be able to make that critique for what's called a cross-sectional study. In a cross-sectional study, we ask people a question in a, in a specific time, and then we uh, look at all the circumstances of their life at that same specific time, and we make those associations, right? We, we run a correlation analysis, and we see, for example, that people who perhaps are falling into a higher income bracket also score higher in happiness. And, and what is it? Is it that more income makes you happy or that being happier puts you in a circumstance or into a position where you end up being more successful in a way that leads to higher income. The reason that we have more confidence in that is that the studies are longitudinal. So in other words, we can do a study and, and there's several who have used this approach where we examine um, the yearbook photos of uh, a sample of individuals. And so we'll just look and we'll analyze the expression that they're showing on their face. And believe it or not, that just moment, that snapshot, that thin slice of your expressive tendency is taken as, as a, a kind of, of, of index of your overall happiness. Like, do you just spontaneously show a big, authentic, genuine, open-hearted smile? Or is your smile a little bit more controlled? Or are you showing even a serious expression? And so if we measure this at time one, say when you're 18, 19, whenever this yearbook photo is occurring, and then follow you throughout the course of your life, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and show that over time, uh, the people who consistently show this pattern of behavior and expressiveness and responses to surveys about happiness also show these um, advantages that I listed, it doesn't necessarily fall into the class of just a correlation where we can't determine, sort of make any causal inferences anymore. We know that the relationship over time holds and that there is some extent to which the context at time A is predictive of an outcome that is, you know, many, many decades later. Well, I'm a little bit skeptical about that, but I, I, I want to ask a I'm going to express my skepticism in a different way maybe than, than usual, which is uh, you and I have never met. We chatted briefly before we started the recording. And I have to say, Emiliana, you strike me as a happy person. 
you have a nice smile yeah. and there you smiled. You didn't like, when I said that, you didn't like cringe or brood or think, I wonder what he means by that. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm using the yearbook thing there a little bit. So you're, you strike me as a happy person. And I think there are a lot of people who believe that you're either happy or you're not. You know, it's all well and good that there's this, there's this, let's say, empirical relationship. Let's be agnostic for a moment about the causation. But there's this empirical relationship. And but you're just lucky. You know, you you got a good draw to the gene pool. You're the happy person because of your parents, maybe the way you grew up. Maybe there's some cultural factors there as well. But you're happy. And hey, look, you're at Berkeley, of course. Yeah. But maybe that's just spurious because you just happen to be a happy person. So is happiness – this is another way to attack this question of whether it's a science of happiness. Can you really get happier? I mean if, if you're just an unhappy person or you see yourself worse, if you see yourself as an unhappy person, are there things one would learn in a course called The Science of Happiness to be happier? And in theory, at least given your view, I'm going to – again, be agnostic, get healthier – uh, be more successful financially, and so on. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the point for of, of most of my work is to really provide that kind of insight and actionable strategies that people might use to improve upon their own happiness level. Thank you for characterizing me, by the way, <laughs> as a happy person. Uh, I'm glad it comes across that way. Um, I want to start, though, with maybe coming to some agreement about what happiness means. Excellent. Idea. Because I think uh, some of the confusion around who is eligible or whether it's malleable and how it works comes from uh, the heterogeneity uh, in, in how people think about and define happiness. Yeah. Um, so for us in the sciences, and one of my other backgrounds is uh, studying emotion, and so this comes into play as I describe how I define and how most of my colleagues who I work with in the science of happiness define it. Um, happiness is not the same as a momentary positive emotional state. I did just describe a study where we looked at the expression of a positive emotion as one kind of measurement of happiness. It is by, it is by no means the um, standard consensus way of measuring happiness. And there are real limitations to measuring happiness as a specific emotional experience. Because what we know is, is that happiness is broader and more general uh, in terms of how a person experiences their life. Positive emotions are brief, adaptive processes that help us relate to opportunities in the environment. They are no more important than what we think of as negative emotions, which are also brief, adaptive, multi-system processes that instead of helping us manage opportunities and access to resources, help us manage threats, right, and danger and loss. All of these emotions are crucial to a healthy mental uh, human experience. And all of them are part of being a happy person. So the mistake that often gets made is that happiness means trying to feel enjoyment all the time. 
means that if I'm a happy person, you would expect me to be smiling, to be cheerful, to be enthusiastic, to be proud, to be amused, to be any number of a long list of terms that describe those heartwarming, um, uh, sort of chest expanding, warm, and pleasurable states. Fun. That isn't necessarily what happiness is. So what is it? So happiness, again, is this broader quality of life, and it gets defined as being able, readily able to experience those positive states when things are going well. So consider for a minute somebody for whom a wonderful context is presented to them, maybe a surprise party and all of their friends are there. Somebody walks in the door and their eyes light up and they feel that just sense of wonder, awe and pleasure and connection and warmth and trust and surprise and delight, right? Another person might walk into that situation and sort of sour and tense up and wonder if if it's as good as they had wanted it to be or as good as another person's party that they might have gone to, you know, three days earlier. Um, those two characteristics are sort of uh, are, are part of what it means to be a happy person. Do you experience positive emotions when you're surrounded by um advantages or privilege or just delight, delightful circumstances. So feeling good when circumstances are good are part of what it means to be a happy person. Uh, We call this the hedonic or affective dimension of happiness. It's only part of the story. Um, The second part of the story is how you think about your life, right? Do you consider your life worthwhile? Do you think that you matter in the world and are you connected to what's most meaningful or what brings you a sense of purpose in life? We call this the evaluative dimension or component of happiness. Um, And then the third one, which is a little bit overlapping with the evaluative and is a little bit newer in the space of trying to understand and characterize subjective well-being and harkens back to sort of Aristotle's philosophical perspective on happiness. And it's really about virtue and feeling like what you do, um, again, contributes to, to or builds your sense of meaningful contribution to humanity right? That you belong, that you've done something that matters in the world. So these get asked, like, how do you feel? Is the hedonic or affective happiness? Um, What do you think about your life? Are you satisfied with your life? That's the quintessential way of capturing uh, the evaluative dimension of happiness. And then do you have a sense of purpose or do you feel like your life is worthwhile? Um, That is a eudaimonic uh, dimension of happiness. And right now, the biggest um, kind of global surveys uh, that attempt to capture happiness or subjective well-being for policy purposes or for tracking progress over time to do something beyond GDP as a measure of social progress. Those are the kinds of questions that they're using to capture happiness. Again, it's not about a specific emotion. It's not that you feel good all the time. It's that you can feel good, that you are, you have a sense in, of looking backward and forward in your life and, and seeing it as something that's good and that it's connected to what matters to you, what feels important and valuable. That's a fabulous summary. Let, let's, uh, Let's go back to the question we, we were talking about a minute ago, which is the genetic versus the 
adjustability of those things. So uh, let's say I'm a brooding uh, person who struggles. I might be an introvert, by the way. So that party is not just, oh, it's not as good as the one I went to last week. It's just I don't like parties. Might not be a positive thing for me at all. Um, I'm, let's say, um, insecure. So on that second dimension, I'm constantly beating myself up that I'm not contributing. And on the third dimension of of using uh, my gifts, say, to flourish, which we recently talked about on the program with Leon Cass and uh, the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, and I like to say that just so I can try to pronounce it the way Leon does because I've been mispronouncing it all my life. I'm assuming Leon gets it right. Um, and that third one, I've never even heard of that. I don't, I'm, I don't have a conscience. I don't have any virtue uh, aspirations. Uh, I just want to, you know, go out in my life and um, and enjoy it. And I'm not good at it. I, I struggle to be happy on that first dimension, and in that second one, I'm so insecure. Or, or I've got a bad career. It's just not satisfying to me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm doing much. You know, what can you do for that person? What can anyone do for that person? You know, we have many ways of helping that people like that. We, our families, chip in to try to boost those those folks like that. We have therapy. In, in you know psychiatry and psychology, we might have meditation and religious instruction to help give people a sense of purpose or to make them more aware of, of their reaction to certain things. Do those work? Can we really take someone who has, let's say, a genetic predisposition to being challenged in those, at least those first two areas? Can we help them? Yeah, I mean. One of the most important findings that came out about in, in 2010 that was by Sonia Lubomirsky was from a study looking at the heritability of, of happiness, of well-being. Like, how can you understand how much do genetics contribute to um, the variance in happiness levels? And so let's just take you and I, for example. Let's imagine that I'm a seven on a scale of one to nine, and that's arbitrary, and you're a five, okay? And this is not true. This is just our hypothetical. And this is, this is self-assessed, <laughs> though, correct? <laughs> What'd you say? Is it self-assessed? When you say yeah. you're a, so when you're asked about your well-being, you say a seven, and when I'm asked, I say a five. That's right. Exactly. We're self-reporting our degree of happiness to a question something along the lines of, you know, in general, how would you characterize your life on a scale of, you know, again, one to nine, arbitrary, with one being not at all happy and nine being very happy. So uh the, this research team examined those kinds of assessments in, a, in what's called a twin study. So they'll look at, at identical twins and compare them to fraternal twins and compare them to siblings and compare them to people who are unrelated and look at how, um, how tightly linked are the or, or, or similar our happiness scores based on this sort of changing degree of genetic similarity. And from their analysis, the genetic contribution to explaining the variance between two people's happiness was about 50 percent. So about half of the reason why you have a six and I have a nine is our genes. And there is no clear genetic signature that we right. can tie directly to happiness or subjective well-being. There are neurotransmitters that are involved in signaling reward. There are neurotransmitters that are 
important for sort of stabilizing our mood, for signaling uh, affection and affiliation or feelings of closeness to others. All of these matter. They all interact with one another and they all play a role. But there's no like one melio of genetic uh, kind of quality that that can right now tell us sort of how easy or difficult it will be for a single person to be more happy or less happy than the, another person around them. Um, so, so knowing that, they wanted to know, well, what else? What are the other big predictors, right? What else explains the variance in happiness scores? And they looked at sort of life circumstances and they looked at daily activities. And life circumstances, I think we do often make a mistake of believing or perceiving our life circumstances. You know, are we, do we live in Berkeley? Um, did we, uh, are we the, the middle sibling or the oldest sibling? Um, what is our income level? Uh, we, we, we tend to think that those circumstances play a big role, right? I mean, I'm unhappy because my parents did X, Y, Z when I was little. Um, in fact, those life circumstance factors explain about 10% of the variance between one person and the, and the person next to them, or the, the sort of historic lived experience. And the other 40% of the variance in happiness is explained by daily activities, right? How you spend your time, what you do with your time, how you are engaging with the world around you. And you alluded to that really nicely when you talked about some of the ways that we uh, quickly think about what we might do if we are feeling less happy than we would like to feel. Maybe we would take on a, a practice of meditation. There is a, a, a really strong case to be made for the benefits of increasing your awareness of the kinds of thoughts and habits that reflexive judgments that we might carry around day to day um, in order to evaluate whether they're actually contributing or detracting from our capacity to experience a positive emotion in a given moment. Um, I do want to speak to the introvert question. I didn't mean my example to be universally pleasurable to every person who could possibly encounter it. You're absolutely right that there are these sort of uh, personality, culture, um, particular context issues that can contribute to any situation in a complex way so that maybe you would experience that surprise party as something unpleasant. Um, the question is, is do you have an option in those moments to, to reflect and interpret and judge yourself and the situation around you in a way that allows that, um, more wonderful experience to happen? Or are you sort of accentuating, highlighting, and exaggerating the more unpleasant, pessimistic, and negative interpretations of the situation in a way that really doesn't allow for you to experience the, the, the warmth of that moment? Yeah, I think I mean, it's a fascinating question. You know, listeners know that I've been on a number of silent meditation retreats that I credit, perhaps inaccurately, I may be fooling myself in a number of dimensions, I'll mention both of them if I remember it, uh, that I credit with reducing stress in my life, uh, feeling more uh, aware of those kind of emotions, and being able to be less impulsive, right? Um, I think, you know, I could be fooling myself, I could be both 
really unchanged. And two, it could have nothing to do with the meditation retreat. could just be getting older, having different <laughs> experiences. Um, but I think that's not the case. I actually think I, I grew from those experiences in interesting ways. But one of the things I've also spoken about that I'd love your reaction to is how hard it is for me to maintain my meditation practice. And I'll give an example that I that I think I've used before. I apologize to listeners who are tired of it. But when I'm on retreat, we eat mindfully. Um, I take a plate of food. Uh, I observe it. Before I put it in my mouth, I look at it. I think about where it came from. And being an economist, you know, something about the division of labor that contributes to our food. And so I find that wondrous, and that puts me in a good mood. And then I put some in my mouth, and I, I sense its texture and its taste. And, you know, the first lunch of the retreat, it's kind of a – that's hard. <laughs> I can't talk to any of the people around me. I can't ask them to pass the salt. I have to get up and go get it. But by the last day of the retreat, I so look forward to lunch, and, and the food part of it is so small. I'm not eating impulsively or uncontrollably. It's so rich, and it takes a very small amount of food. In fact, I don't take much food because it takes a while to eat it because I'm chewing it mindfully. And so I usually lose weight on retreat. Um, and, when I, and, and when I'm doing, experiencing that, I say to myself, you know, when I go back, I'm going to eat lunch like this every day. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, and yet, when I go back, I don't. I read the sports section while I'm eating. I don't notice what I'm eating. I, read, I eat compulsively. I eat more than I, quote, want. Uh, why is it that we are drawn away from the contemplation of, of mindfulness? And another way to think about it is, you know, I— I love it when my mind is stilled on retreat and I'm aware of everything in an almost hypersensitive way. But when I get back, I love monkey mind. I love just letting my thoughts run around and take me wherever they're going to go and check my email too often. And what's going on there in your in your view? I in mean, my view, not just my personal problems, but in general. <laughs> I, I definitely don't think it's your own personal problem. I think it's... Um, What you're characterizing is the importance of context. Uh, When you're on a silent retreat, everybody's doing the mindful eating. You have some kind of guide or leading figure who's explaining in in a very inspirational and uh, moving way, inviting way, uh, why and how to do this. And and frankly, you're not... um, inundated with all of the other demands and sources of information. You're not, you don't have the sports page right there. You don't have the email notifications, you know, dinging away at you. And um, you don't have all the other people living in that same kind of hyper uh, engaged with information way that, that you normally do, or that most of us normally do in our day-to-day lives. Um, the context really matters. I also think that there's a story to be told about the human nervous system. You know, the brain is, doesn't, it's kind of agnostic to, um, like how we are going to feel in terms of, um, some kind of greater, uh, virtue. It really just wants to make us efficient. And what's really efficient is automating, 
uh, uh, sort of repeated experiences. So if you uh, over and over again, through choice and maybe just observation of what's normative, uh, read the newspaper while you eat and um, check your phone while you're reading the newspaper while you're eating, um, your brain just begins to make that the most simple automatic go-to experience to support. Uh, your nervous system just goes, oh, okay, this is what's happening over and over again. And while that might be sort of disconcerting or make it seem hopeless, it's also equally promising because what it tells us is the story of neuroplasticity in any direction. And it really gives credence to this idea that you can change something about your experience in the world, how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you interpret and relate to the context that you find yourself in uh, through deliberate practice, through engaging in activities, hard as they may be. Um, I can't think of very many people who would say, hey, you know what? I exercised really hard yesterday and I can't wait to go exercise really hard again today just because I, you know, I, I want to get started on that. It's always kind of the after. It's the, oh, I, I, I know it feels so good. I know it's so good for my health. It's not that I really enjoy that moment in the moment feeling of, you know, pain in the muscles, um, insecurity about whether I'm fast enough or as fast as I should be. I'm imagining going for a run. Um, It's that I know it's going to be good for me. And so I do it because I I know it'll have this positive effect on me. And we really have embraced the theory of exercise and health uh, as a society. And so it's not questionable anymore, right? It's not questionable that it's a good idea. Nobody's going to say, no, no, rest. Don't, don't, don't exercise. It's not worth it. You're genetically predisposed to have the body that you have and to get whatever diseases you're going to get. Don't, you know, forget about it. The same uh, sort of eligibility is there uh, for happiness, uh, for subjective well-being in life. If we choose, if we're deliberate, if we um, apply the same intention and discipline to behaving in ways that serve key drivers of well-being, um, our well-being will change. And there's a fair amount of research to support that claim. I think it's still a young science and we have a lot more work to do on that front, trying to understand the opportunity for what we might call an intervention, a happiness or a well-being intervention to actually change in a measurable and enduring or sustained way a person's happiness in life. But it sounds like mindfulness worked pretty well for you, Russ. Yeah, and yet... I'm struck. It did. It was fabulous. And when I'm there, by the way, my, uh, I don't know how to say it, the lingo, but my affect is, is very good when I'm on that retreat. Uh, it's just interesting to me how hard it is for me to maintain a practice. And of course, maintaining a practice while feeling guilty about how mediocre your meditation is kind of is against the rules. <laughs> the, whole, the whole idea is it's not necessarily so goal-centered and you shouldn't be trying to think about whether you're a good meditator or not. And yet, of course, we struggle with that from years of conditioning and all the other things we do. Um, I mean, let me shift gears a little bit and let's talk about virtue. Um, referencing both the recent episode I mentioned with Leon Cass and also a recent episode with Michael Munger. Uh, I don't think I've ever called him Michael Munger like that at the middle of an episode. Mike Munger. Sorry, Mike. Mm-hmm. 
He's probably listening. Not right now, but he will be. Um, <laughs> we talked about the following um, scenario, Mike and I did, where you find a wallet in the street and it has no identification. It has identification. It's full of cash and no one's around. Uh, again, these kind of hypotheticals are a little bit silly because in some sense, besides – a religious person might worry that God is around. A, a, a person with conscience might wonder that themse- that they're around. They'll, they'll see themselves keeping the wallet. Um, and there's always some uncertainty, really, of the, the, you know, whether no one literally is watching. But let's try to imagine that. There's no external human being who sees you with, with this challenge. And, um, in fact, let's think about our children. You mentioned before we recorded you have children. I have children. Would you want your child – to return that wallet or keep it? Would you want your child, more importantly, I think, to feel good about returning the wallet? Or would you want to inculcate in your child a lack of conscience so they could enjoy keeping the wallet? And when you say something like that, I know know, all of us, I think, kind of go like, oh, that would be a horrible thing to do. But, you know, in certain dimension, that would be a good thing to to give your, don't, don't burden your children with a conscience. Then they can you know, think about it. If you don't have a conscience, you can keep the wallet, all the cash, get all kinds of good stuff for it. When you're traveling, no need to tip because you'll never see that waiter or waitress again. Just enjoy it. Stiff them. Just don't, you know, don't, don't tip at all. Uh, we could think some other horrible examples. These all, I just want to make it clear, they repel me. I, I think they're appalling. But what's the argument for why you would want to inculcate on secular grounds, not religious grounds now, but on secular grounds, why would you inculcate a conscience in someone? Won't they be happier without a conscience? Great question. Uh, and two answers. One, I want to share with you research by Elizabeth Dunn, who does a similar uh, paradigm uh, to, to what you just described, except that there is no wallet in the story. Instead, she brings people into a laboratory study and she gives them money and she gives half of them the instruction after getting, well, well, she measures their, their well-being. She says, how, how are you doing? You know, what, what, what's going on? How happy are you? And then she gives them the money and let's just say it's 50 bucks And she tells half of the people, listen, you know, you've got the whole day, go do whatever you do, spend this $50 on something for someone else. And then the other half, she says, hey, uh, you got this $50, go spend it, you know, do something for yourself, enjoy it, right? Uh, This is the the parent who tells their child not to have a conscience and just to get the money and then figure it out. And then at the end of the day, they come back and she, you know, in, in ensures that they've followed the instructions and then she measures their well-being at the end of the day. And you might be anticipating what the finding is, but time and time again, and, and, and Elizabeth Dunn and Laura Ackman have done this research around the world. When people give, spend their money on other people, their happiness level increases more, significantly more than when they go out and spend that money on themselves. So the myth that like uh, spending all of our resources on ourselves and, and that again, pleasure uh, and consumerism and materialism are actually routes to sustainable happiness is, is just wrong. It doesn't bear out in the research. People who are more materialistic 
are less happy than people who are less materialistic. We can measure this and uh, derive those relationships. So, so that's the first part of the story. Um, the second part of the story is related, and it's that when we behave generously, when we um, uh, interact with one another in cooperative ways, when we build social bonds, we're um, serving a core need that humans as an ultra-social species have. So humans as a mammalian species um, rely on one another for our adaptive success. We are not the largest, hairiest, sharp-clawed, aggressive species on the planet. Our success is um, emergent from our capacity to fold into complex and coordinated social groups. That's what makes us successful. And so our nervous systems have evolved to motivate that, to motivate that and to reward that experience of having these long-term social bonds, of feeling pleasure in a um, cooperatively arrived upon success more so than we would at arriving at an individual success. This is all also captured in neuroscience studies that put people into a big scanner and they have them play a game where they, you know, have to hit a button really fast to win money. And they either win that money themselves just by doing it on their own, or they win that money as part of a team where together they're earning the same prize, but they've done it together. And there's a bigger pleasure response in these dopamine reward pathways when people um, earn those rewards as part of a team, when they're collaborating or cooperating operating. So we're built to be social. This is part of our evolutionary heritage and our bodies. Um, we've been able to measure both psychological experiences and physical responses that indicate the, the specific reward that we experience in association with, again, a cooperative endeavor as opposed to an individualistic endeavor. Well, I'm sympathetic to that research, although I'm, I'm skeptical about whether that actually is a reliable finding. I, let, me, let me give you my skepticism and, and uh, an alternative way to think about it and see what you think. You know, there's a replication crisis in social psychology and in lots of economics, science in general. There, a lot of these small group studies tend not to replicate, partly not through some kind of fraud, but simply because researchers wanting to find something in particular are drawn to making choices that, you know, either get it published publication bias, a lot of reasons. Um, and, and part of my thought of being skeptical about that that is that, first of all, most people don't give away a lot of their money. They don't choose this route toward happiness that, that seems, according to the research, to be there. Uh, I, I encourage people to tithe. I, give away, I try to give away 10% of my after-tax income. I think it's a lovely thing. I'm a big fan of it, but I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I do it because I think I'm supposed to, not because it makes me happy, and I'm not sure it would make you happy, listener, if you did it, but it might. And that's the part of what we're talking about here. The other skepticism I have is that having four kids, all of whom are older than three years old, uh, when they were three, uh, their big thing was mine. <laughs> it was – they weren't so evolved to be in team effort and to share. And so I think there's an argument to be made that that – sharing 
and cooperating. I mean, I like to think it's it's hardwired into us, but there's also an argument that it's cultural, that we have to be instructed in it, either through religion or secular instruction, and that you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in the earlier point you made, and it came up in, in the episode we did with Dan Klein on Adam Smith and Honest Income, that you might start off having a natural urge to keep the wallet and the money. But if you continually urge yourself to become the kind of person who returns wallets, you can start to get selfish satisfaction from that altruistic act. And I think that's an incredibly deep insight. I think it's true. I don't know it's true. I don't have any you know, evidence for it. And in the research or scientific way, just my own armchair thinking about it, my own life. I do think that the habits that we ingrain in ourselves that you alluded to earlier about, say, how we eat or how we observe ourselves or how aware we are, that they can be grooved in different directions and that part of growing up is acquiring the habits that are the right ones or the better ones or the virtuous ones and that they lead to a, a sense of meaning in life that that's rewarding, and and you know that's I think one way to raise your kids. Um, it also I think helps literally for them their own outcomes because people want to be around people like that if you can do it well without you know looking like you're scheming to look nice when you actually are nice. And I think the insight that Dan brought and it's you know it's it's in many many religious traditions, and I'm sure it's somewhere in psychology is that. If you develop that alternative habit, uh, it will become, quote, natural, uh, akin to the previous natural urge you had that you, you can, that you can overcome that and create an alternative. What do you think? You know, it's a very common narrative of humanity, and I sort of blame Sigmund Freud for it, this idea that we're at our core driven by this, this id this savage, self-interested, competitive mm -hmm. id that will just grasp at whatever um, it can possibly pull into its own, you know, uh, sphere of, of resources. Mine, mine, mine. Gimme, gimme. Yeah, gimme. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, but I take, um, I, I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't think that evidence from, from psychology, from developmental psychology, from social psychology, from the science of well-being or happiness uh, actually supports that perspective. Uh, I think of research by Felix Wernicken and Max Tomasello with little kids. Uh, these are kids who are under two, who over and over again, they put them in situations where they're given a chance to choose between helping another person in the room or do something that is going to be fun for themselves. And like the crowning majority of the time, way more than, than by chance level, the kids will always help the other person in the room. That's just, they see a need and they go do it. They put their own toy down. They decide not to, to, to avail themselves of some other fun uh, possibility. And instead they go help, they go back. They go back and find the fun thing that they want once they're done helping. But at a very core early level, kids 
behave in ways that are cooperative and helpful spontaneously without any affirmation or reward from any of the adults in the room. So again, the idea uh, is that it's not our core nature to be selfish. And we may as parents notice and remember those embarrassing times, those sort of disconcerting times when our kids act selfishly and we're sort of surprised by it. But to me, that's just a function of the um, uh, un unpalatableness of those moments and how our minds actually do sort of highlight or bias to really notice. It's called the negativity bias to notice those uh, those okay. moments that are more challenging to our sense of what's right and what's safe and what's normative. And so we think they're really common, but they're actually not that common. Way more of the time, our three-year-olds are very graciously cooperating with each other, making up games together, figuring out how to enjoy time in a, in a shared way with one another. So, so I, I, I don't really believe that, that notion that, that, our, that at the core we're selfish. I believe that um, we've evolved as mammals, and this is also work by uh, Franz de Waal, who's a primatologist, sure. Um, work by, um, oh gosh, my friend at the University of Chicago, Jean Desetti, who has looked at rodents, has looked at rats who free each other from small enclosures, not because they're like, there's, there's no other reason for them to be freeing one another from this uncomfortable situation other than that they feel like that's uh, the important and rewarding thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's a mammalian behavior that supports sort of social um, social living right um so so yeah I, I just don't think that that narrative holds um in these research studies that look at primates and whether they cooperate and whether they share and whether they express gratitude and whether they reconcile after conflict time and time again the finding is they do they exhibit these pro-social behaviors uh, spontaneously and quite often contrary to a sort of mythical rendering of chimpanzees that may have emerged from some, you know, tradition <laughs> that I can't really explain. Well, I'm really skeptical of that, but, you know, we might just agree to disagree. Maybe we'll talk about it for another few minutes. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Jane Goodall, for example, who, you know, did uh, extraordinary work with primates. Um, there's a wonderful documentary about her work uh, that has incredible footage of when she was younger and, you know, on the ground. It's an amazing documentary. I recommend it. Um, the punchline of that work, um, not the punchline, but one of the punchlines of that work is that she had a romantic image of primate life uh, that was deeply shattered by their violent and murderous tendencies with strangers. Um, now, I'm not saying that's the way we are. Uh, I don't want to suggest. I just think it's it's very hard to overcome either our romanticization of of human nature or the other way, which I think you go too far the other way and just say, yeah, we're just a bunch of selfish animals, to, you know, designed. I think both of those views are wrong. I think we have a, a cooperative side, and I think we have obviously a strong self-interested side. I've mentioned it before, but it's, it's I think, relevant here. My older son, I used to trade with his younger brother with baseball cards, and I had to act as the commissioner because my older son knew more about the value of the cards than my younger son. And 
it was awkward. I don't think that's a unique experience of parenting. I think I think we often have to teach our children and and I think the to be cooperative. And I think the and the rewards of cooperation that I think don't always come naturally. And I'm also struck just by the you know, religious traditions you know, it's, it says in, uh, I think, Leviticus, love your neighbors yourself. Uh, it tells it says that because it doesn't come naturally. Uh, it says, honor your parents. Don't love them because it's too hard to love them. <laughs> Honoring would be like a tremendous achievement. And I just would say as an aside, of course, some of our awareness of our, chi- our, our own children's graspingness probably comes from their being in their parents' presence, not always so much with siblings or strangers. And I assume that that children and parents have complicated genetic and cultural issues uh, in terms of drawing away and self self you know independence, autonomy. Um, but I, I'm I'll let you respond to that if you want, I, and and then I want to move on to something else. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to caution against over presuming the higher influence on anyone's moment to moment experience. And and by that, I mean, is it self-interest or is it pro-social? Like is is one more important or more prominent or more influential than the other? I don't know of any evidence that suggests that um, either is less worthwhile or less crucial uh, I think what I'm trying to do with my work is put the pendulum back towards the middle and create a narrative of agility so that we don't feel like it's automatically the case that we have to react in self-interest or that we have to react in a cooperative and generous way, no matter what the situation or the circumstances at hand present us with. There are certainly situations where acting in self-interest is the right choice, right? Moving yourself out of the way of an oncoming vehicle, really, really important to do. Even if you see through the vehicle window that the person might be crying and feel the urge to like stay right where you are and maintain some kind of supportive eye contact, right? You might have both of those urges. Hey, you know, getting out of the way is the right choice in that moment. So it's, again, not to say that I'm trying to make the case that overall humans, you know, primary role is always to invest their resources into the other, right? That's always what we need to do. Definitely not the case. I just think that the narrative historically has been overly focused on self-interest and at a at a disadvantage to the possibility of leveraging our pro-social tendencies to benefit our own well-being. I think if we don't utilize those pro-social inclinations and we don't behave in ways that are consistent with them, we end up having less happiness in our lives. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about that generally. I think the some of the most satisfying well, it's complicated, right? Some of the most satisfying things we accomplish we do on our own. Um mm-hmm. writing a book would be an example of that. Um and yet working together with a group of people to achieve something great is extraordinary. You see it in sports, you see it in uh put, putting a person on the moon. It, it's obvious that there is something profoundly human 
about that kind of cooperation. So I, I certainly don't want to undervalue it or uh, or discourage people from seeking it out because I think it's easy to stay narrowly focused. Um, listeners know I'm writing a book on decision-making and it's dealing with issues about one of the things I'm trying to deal with is parenting and marriage. Um, what do you think we know about the roles of marriage and parenting in, in creating happiness? We live in a time where at least traditional marriage, meaning uh, as opposed to living with someone, you know, officially marrying someone is not not so common. Is it not as common as it used to be for people, say, 20 to 30? Age of marriage is getting later. Number of people never married is larger. People are increasingly not interested in having children, and those that do have typically one in the United States and wealthier countries. Um, do we know anything about how these two things – uh, marriage and parenting create uh, or or destroy happiness um, because I think both are possible. What are your thoughts on yeah. that? I, I think you're right. I think both and is the response to that. Um, although I will back up for a moment and just say that what matters is the presence of long-term supportive social bonds right? Having relationships with people that are supportive, that um, allow us to go through life with a sense of safety and trust. And so what this presents us with in the, in the literature um, on marriage and becoming parents is a murky set of findings. You may find uh, when researchers try to study, well, does getting married make you happy? And they, and they sort of measure happiness over time and they measure before the wedding and then on the day of the wedding and then a year later and three years later and five years later. Generally, the pattern is that of a set point, right? And the set point is kind of the genetics of happiness story. Like you can have a particular experience that's really remarkable, both in the positive or the negative direction you just described moving right as a, as a life experience that you're about to undertake that can be incredibly stressful a real uh, kind of disruption of your normal life and and it and it's big it's a real emotional experience that is important to acknowledge um but it's not going to make you unhappy and stressed for the rest of your life right you're going to adjust to it you're going to adapt to it you'll be back to your set point of whatever happiness you my you baseline arrive at yeah. Um, so the same can be said for getting married, for having kids. Uh, again, the pattern tends to be that just before the anticipation, there's this little blip upwards in happiness. Right when it happens, there's this bigger increase in happiness. People are really excited uh, about this new experience in life. And then gradually, the happiness line goes back to the kind of set point level that it was before. That's on average across everyone, right? All the large sample studies where we're measuring thousands of thousands of people globally or at national levels and, and examining these patterns. Now, if you ask something about the quality of these relationships, the stories are a little bit more interesting. Um, and I think one of the big stories that came out recently was that, you know, marriage is great for men and not so good for women, right? The, the people who get married, uh, their happiness goes up if they're men and it kind of stays up and, you know, it's this great boon to their well-being. And for women, it might go up and then kind of go back down and maybe even dip below, right? Hell, mostly. <laughs> um, while there is some interesting 
insights to, 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 to arrive at and in trying to interpret those findings. If you pull them apart even further and ask people like about how their relationship is, like how is your relationship conflictual? Is your relationship supportive? Do you experience um, sort of meaningful growth uh, in the company or connected, you know, with each other? And if so, the happiness benefits endure, right? The health benefits endure. The relationship serves the people in, our, uh, in, in the relationship. If the relationship isn't of high quality, right? If somebody it feels like they're not seen or they're not being respected or served or supported, yeah, none of that is good for happiness. So, so it's a little bit of a, of a blunt hammer to try to understand what, what having kids or getting married does for happiness if you don't also take into consideration the nature of the relationships. Um, uh, it's complex. Um, if, if you become a parent and you have a very difficult child for, for a number of reasons, it's going to be a different experience than if for whatever reason you're lucky enough to have a child who's really easygoing and independent and um, motivated uh, to do well in school, right? And, and to get along with other people. Those kinds of parents tend to uh, experience an increase as a result of it. There's also findings about the number of kids, right? One kid uh, has a certain uh, increase in happiness. To, once you have your second kid, the increase gets a little bit lower by the third kid, increase even lower by the fourth kid, you actually don't get an increase at all. You're just <laughs> so stressed about trying to manage the demands of, you know, being responsible for this many small people that mm -hmm. it can really make it difficult to experience any of the joyful moments or maybe relaxing or contented moments that are important to to your equation of happiness. Yeah. Um, I, as someone said, uh, once you get to the third kid, uh, you're playing shorthanded. Yeah. If you exactly. have a, even if you have a spouse, doesn't, you know, it's two of you, three of them, you're outnumbered. Uh, I don't like that joke, but it makes me laugh anyway. I don't think of my children as a source of, of conflict that way. At least I don't want to. Um, but you would, you've written a piece on this, some of these findings where, you know, single unmarried women, but yeah, unmarried women without children are the happiest group. That finding in particular was the result of a misunderstanding of the, how the data were collected. And um, but I will mention that I once mentioned that to a stranger in 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 the airport that finding, and she was so excited. And I said, "Are you married? No." I said, "Do you have children? No." But you know, I said, "Well, unfortunately, you know, it's not really a reliable finding." Uh, but I think the real answer is, is, of course, as you said, you marry the right, quote, the, the right person, which is impossible to define. But someone who's supportive has certain other characteristics. You're more, much more likely to have a contented uh, time as a, as a married person. And obviously, if your children are, are troubled, it's much harder. They have health issues, mental issues. It's obviously harder. But, you know, I'm blessed to have four healthy children. And, you know, my feeling on this, and I don't know if this is common, and I, I think it's you know, uh, Francis Bacon, the 16th century essayist, you know, said uh, parents, the joys of parenting are secret. He didn't have any kids, by the way. Um, he had a horrible marriage. But he, um, his, his point in that essay where he's talking about parenting is that 
parents keep their troubles to themselves and their joys. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in day-to-day life. I don't think most parents I know, we don't sit around and talk about how great our kids are. Now, excuse me, we talk way too much about how great our kids are. We don't talk much about what it's like to be a parent and how that changes a person. And I think it changes a person in, in really important and, and powerful ways that are way beyond the affect of what day-to-day life is with four little people. I have four kids. Any one day as a parent, and I say even the same thing about marriage, I'm very happily married. I love my wife deeply. I'm so grateful that we're together. But any one day, you might wish you weren't or that you didn't have kids or that they weren't doing this to you or whatever. And I think it really highlights, for me anyway, the importance of the non-affect part of life, the non benthamite pleasures and pains. The satisfaction I get from life, even though there are plenty of glorious moments as a parent when your kid does something beautiful, funny, delightful, sweet, but that's not why you become a parent. You don't become a parent to, so you can get, you know, show them off or do whatever, you know, whatever pleasure you get from your children on a moment-to-moment basis. You do it because it transforms how you see yourself. And I think that eudaimonic understanding of life is profound. Uh, I think Aristotle was onto something there. And um, if you'd ask me, you know, are you glad you were a parent? The, or you're a parent, I'd say 100%. Again, not because it's fun, because <laughs> a lot of it's not fun, but because it's meaningful. It's powerful. It enriches your life in ways. Now, for me, it's like bittersweet chocolate, you know, or I've used the example in here of Lafroy Scotch. It's 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 an acquired taste, but it, it's more than just a taste. It 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 infuses your sense of self. You just said that beautifully, um, and I, I I agree. I would add that I think there's good evidence that the act of caregiving, yeah, the uh, pathways in your brain that are involved in that urge to approach and affectionately nurture um, a vulnerable, conspecific. That's a very um, dry way to describe your baby <laughs> or a young child. What was, what was the phrase? What? Vulnerable, conspecific, right? What was Another the specific? Person who's small and, and, you know, needs something that you are alone can provide in that given moment. But what's, it, what's, what's the phrase before specific? Conspecific. Oh, what does that mean? Just another person, okay. a, a person who is like, <laughs> who's, not, or, who's not me, <laughs> a species of, of, of similarity to you. And, and I use that term only because we have those feelings. We have that urge uh, when we walk um, down the sidewalk and, and, a, and a person we've never met is holding a puppy. Right. Yeah. We, we, we have that like draw towards this puppy to do something, to pet them, to nurture them, to hug them, even though, you know, we have no relationship to them and, and no future with this puppy necessarily. Um, that's just a small version of what most parents feel when they confront their own their own infants and and they're growing infants into children into young adults into teenagers and adulthood i think that there is this meaningfulness element to it but there's this also just sheer affection element to it and again the evidence i was thinking of 
It's from Stephanie Brown, uh, who is a researcher at um, SUNY Rochester, who studies parenting in the brain and the parenting pathways and how actually a sustained engagement of these nurturance pathways, we can, I'm using parenting and nurturance interchangeably here, uh, is associated with longevity and um, just benefits to health over the course of life. So again, evolution has sort of sculpted us to be, um, to benefit from using this affordance that we have as a species to, to become parents, to serve, to be more generous than any philosophical um, kind of argument might suggest is natural to a human, right? We, yeah. we do everything and anything for our children. And there's something about that generosity, that nurturance, that affection that is profound and instrumental to the human experience. And I think what's, I might just add on to that. Obviously not everybody can have children, men or women, um, not everybody's able to found, find a partner in life to be married. But what you're suggesting, which is really quite beautiful, is that there are other ways to tap into that human experience. You can nurture others who are not your genetic offspring, not your adopted children, but total unrelated to you in any way. You can connect and find supportive friends that substitute for these things that that we've culturally honored marriage and children obviously we've <laughs> they've got a long history of of um of encouragement from again religion and and secular secular tradition but there are other ways to get there from here i i, I don't want to leave this uh before i i i want to mention adam smith and i'm going to disappoint listeners at home with the drinking game I, I, this is a slightly different quote but it's the same point so i'm sorry about that but in the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith wrote a beautiful thing. He said, "The chief." This again is roughly uh, 1759. I don't know if it was in the first edition. Uh, the chief part of human happiness arises from the consciousness of being beloved, and um, he got a lot of it right there without any studies and regressions or cross tabs. Or uh, I think there's a long understanding. That as human beings, we need some kind of connection with other people. And by beloved, he didn't mean romantically only. In particular, he meant praised, respected, honored, to be well thought of by the people around us that, that we interact with. And I think that's a, you know, a easy thing to forget and a good thing to remember. I agree. Um, I think another really important part of that uh, statement which I, I, I'm not sure if it's implied, but I will tease it out anyway, which is, it's also beloving, and, and I'm making up that word. It's yeah. not just being beloved, but it's knowing that you are an important person in relationship to others, be that your, your family members, be that your spouse, be that your friends, your community, your colleagues, you have a role in beloving the people around you and that that is valuable, that that matters. So I, I think that's an important part of, of, of what being beloved means. It's not just that others are, are providing that to you and you feel safe and supported, but also that you figure importantly in upholding the safety and supportedness of others. It's a fantastic point I've never thought of directly in that context. Um, 
I'm one way to think about that. I mean, let me put it, give an example. Obviously, when I'm had when I've had a bad day, when I'm struggling with something, I love that my wife cares about me, takes care of me, and so on. And then, oh yeah, 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 I, and I like when I help her too. <laughs> you know, but it's so much. Um, I, I didn't get to read this yet, but my one of my children sent me uh, recently a uh, an article by Bagley, whose name first name I don't know, and I haven't read the article. But the gist of it is is that uh, a good relationship is like a, is like jazz, an ensemble, where you're interacting in unexpected and complementary ways. And I think a good relationship, especially a marriage, isn't just, oh, you have a good marriage. My wife loves me. And it's not just, oh, and I love my wife. It's that our mutual nurturing, and this is true of children, it's two of our of our best friend kinds of friendships, our mutual nourishing is um, reliable. Uh, as Leon Cass mentioned in the last episode on these, this topic we were talking about, I love this. It's without impediment. It's direct. It's not what's in it for me or what am I going to get out of this in return later. It's not calculative or purposive in that way. It's simply being in close support of a fellow human being. And I think that does tap into something profound in all of us, whether it's in friendship, marriage, parenting, or being a child, by the way, of a parent. (laughs) <laughs> which we all are. Um, it, it's um, I love that addition. I think it's it's being self centered. We tend to think about being loved, but if we're mindful, we can remember that we also need to love others. Well, I think one way that can make it more poignant to bring to mind is imagining a moment when you, for whatever reason, are unable to provide the support that you know is required to somebody who you really care about. Yeah. I, I can think of few more unpleasant and stressful states than that one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're all going to encounter it at some point. Um, our, our beloveds will suffer. Um, they will pass and we will be unable to prevent it or to alleviate the, the distress around it in the other person. And, and that, that is really, really troubling, right? That's an existential challenge. And so to try to connect with like how important it is, it might not be easy to be like, Oh yeah. You know, helping them feels really great. Yeah. But instead, how hard is it when I can't, how terrible is it when I know that I'm not doing what needs to get done for this person to feel as supported or, comfortable or safe as, as I want them to feel. Um, and yeah, I, I also just want to echo how important it is that relationships are not based in a kind of transactional yeah. orientation that it's not tit for tat, um, in, in our long-term life, lifelong bonds, social bonds, whether they're with our spouses or our dear friends or any other sort of community that we, that we feel like a sense of belonging with. My father passed away a year ago. We we're very close. And one of the things that's been hard about the last year is that I can't tell him things that I know. I, I want that respect from him that he used to give me, not easily, just by the way. Um, 
he made me earn it, which I also appreciate, even though it wasn't always appreciated at the time. But I never thought about the other side, which is what you're talking about. The part of what I miss is the opportunity to help him and not not just in the health way, of course, which when he was older, I had, you know, to to do some of that. Uh, but but more the opportunity to um, to be a teacher, which is interesting to think about. You know, he was he was my teacher, obviously, for at least 20 years uh, when I was younger. But of course, when I got older, I could teach him. I could bring books to him that he hadn't read, music that he hadn't heard. And part of it, to be honest, was I wanted him to recognize, of course, how wise and and uh, tasteful my my choices were in music and books. But it's more than that. Um, I loved making him happy. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. much easier uh, for him to make me happy than for me to make him happy because that's the way parents and and children are sometimes. But um, I never thought about that sense of loss, the inability, not just what I got from the person, which we all understand immediately as part of loss, but the opportunity to give to another person, which is silenced and, and ended in that with death. It's, um, it's really um, important thing to think about. It's really sweet. Um, well, first, I'm super sorry for your loss. And I know that that is just one of the most difficult things that we face in our, in our lives. Um, and yeah, you said it beautifully, uh, not being able to continue to bring joy to another person in a way that fuels our sense of meaning and purpose as people is, is real. Uh, you've written a lot about gratitude and, um, and we had AJ Jacobs on the program to, with talking about his book, Thanks a Thousand, which is a sweet, sweet, uh, paying um, ode to to the to the virtues of gratitude and the challenges of being grateful in the modern times when so many people often contribute to what uh, we get to enjoy. Uh, why is gratitude important? And what would you encourage people to do who want to uh, have a practice of gratitude in their life? Gratitude is important because it orients us to the things that are good, right? In any given moment, there's an infinite number of things we could be focusing on or paying attention to or reflecting on or ruminating on. And in that set of infinite things, some of it is good. Something is good. And gratitude kind of gets you to bring that stuff into your awareness. Um, Gratitude is important because it takes the focus off of yourself, right? By nature, gratitude is not about things that we revere that we've earned, it's about things that have come to us, goodness in our life that we have, that we get, that we didn't have to work for, right? That somebody else did or some other force of nature or the world that we live in has presented to us. So it's, it sort of steers our, our, our thinking away from self-focus. And then when gratitude is about other people, which I think is the most powerful kind of gratitude it gets us to connect other people with reward, with pleasure, with goodness in our lives. And I just think that's so valuable. You know, again, we do live in a, in a kind of uh, society, most of us, where we encounter lots and lots of people day in and day out. And evolutionarily, we probably aren't prepared to interact with that many strangers on a day-to-day basis. Uh, In fact, strangers tend to arouse a subtle stress response because we're just not sure what they're going to do. But gratitude is a way to 
steer our bias away from suspicion and um, vigilance to threat and towards the possibility that any human that we come across or interact with in our workplace or in our neighborhood might actually be a potential cooperator or cooperative partner. So again, it brings us to this place of optimism, of recognizing what's good. It gets us to stop being so self-oriented and self-focused and in many cases, given the kind of highly competitive, perfectionistic uh, culture that um, us overachievers uh, tend to live in, uh, self-critical, right? If we can sort of quiet that and then also uh, steer ourselves towards recognizing and tuning into the goodness of other people and the way that other people in the world can contribute to goodness in our own lives is, is why gratitude is important. Uh, how could you get better at gratitude? Um, honestly, just say it more often, but say it in a way that is specific enough that it can have the impact, um, the most uh, notable impact. And, and what I mean by that is uh, throughout the day, other people do things that, that serve you. And we most often come to take it for granted um, because we're used to having somebody bag our groceries or we're used to um, the person on the telephone um, reminding us of some opportunity that we may or not be interested in. Uh, is there a way to capitalize on that moment, leverage those moments to express one, thank you for doing what you do. So describe what the other person did. Um, acknowledge the effort that the other person put into it. And, you know, I know you had to set aside time and energy to do this and explain how it benefited you. I really learned something important from hearing what you just told me, or I really, um, you know, I'll, I'll try a different example. Uh, and this one will pertain to uh, family relationships. Let's imagine that um, your spouse um, washed the car, right? Wash the car. And, and you're like, great, the car's been dirty. That's one way to think about it. Thank God they finally did what they were supposed to do. That's, that's like the non-gratitude way to think about it. You don't feel connected to them. You feel actually kind of strangely adversarial about whose job is what and whether anybody's done what they were supposed to do in a kind of comparison way. Instead, can you go, wow, you washed the car. Thank you for doing that. I'm describing what you did for going outside, getting it together and washing it. I know you could have gone, you know, for a walk with a friend or called uh, your, your mom and had a conversation about, you know, the Grammys award ceremony. Um, but instead, you, you decided to go out and wash the car. That really matters to me. And then now when I go outside and I, you know, drive to the wherever you're going to go, um, I know it's, there's fewer options in these uh, pandemic times, but uh, wherever it is, maybe you're driving to get your vaccine, I won't feel embarrassed or ashamed or weird about how terrible our car looks to, to other people. And, and again, like just doing that, taking that extra, I don't know, 45 seconds to describe what the person did, acknowledge their effort and explain or describe how it benefited you. It just changes everything. It's like, a, it's like an immediate way to shift the tone of your own feeling, the feelings in the other person, and the sense of connection that you have with them. And it can be to the person bagging your groceries, or it can be to the people who you feel very close to in your life. I think one of the challenges of marriage is that you don't care about the same things your spouse cares about. 
Um, you don't care about them as intensely. Your spouse might really care about the car, and you don't care at all. And so you don't clean it because it's stupid to clean the car. I mean, really, what does it matter? It doesn't really. Just, it's just superficial. But your spouse doesn't feel that way. And putting yourself in your spouse's shoes and being able to see it through their eyes and then doing something for them that you actually are not so focused on is um, it's an act of, of kindness. It's not unimportant. And I say it's, it's interesting how hard it is, I think, to come to those realizations of those people out there who do live with someone or married to someone. I recommend you thinking about those in your down moments down then. But listening to you talk about gratitude, I was struck by uh, a very uneconomist-like thought, which is it's really a free lunch, feeling grateful. I mean, there's no cost to it. it feeling grateful for sure. Saying it is a little bit costly. It might require a little bit of self-abnegation, and 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 you might feel, have trouble with those kind of feelings. But feeling grateful is totally free. If you can get yourself acclimated, accustomed to it, it's um, it's a glorious uh, plus. It does give you a little bit of a rush too, and um, I'm all for it. I think it's a big, it's a wonderful, easy habit. Uh, Try to inculcate it in my in my kids. It not wasn't so easy. I have to confess. For some of them, it's challenging. I think it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember. It's not a cruel thing. It's not like they don't deserve my gratitude. It's just like just get easily if you're not careful in life and go through life just not appreciating people, and more importantly, not expressing it. I got my second vaccine uh, a week ago or so, and uh, I found it very moving, actually. One was the amount of knowledge embedded in that needle that came into my arm, which, you know, the amount of giants whose shoulders had to be stood upon to get that, uh, to make me feel safer, is just an amazing human achievement. But the other part was that this person, the pharmacist assistant, who was just dutifully doing her job. In, in her mind, I think she didn't show any signs that this was a profound moment like it was for me. And I just said to her, you know, thank you for being here. I know it's not always easy. You know, she's at, she's encountering dozens of strangers every day within a, a you know breathing distance. Mask, forget the mask. We're all wearing masks, but it doesn't matter. What a courageous and glorious thing to do. And to just take it for granted is appalling. It was a wonderful thing that she did. And I suspect she didn't think about it so much day to day. And I wish, I hope everyone says thank you to those folks, not because they're heroes. It's a phrase I don't like, you know, the frontline people, because they're doing something human for another person that isn't so easy sometimes. And you should thank people for that, I think. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Um, It's not costly. Uh, it's something we can get better at. There are lots of other ways. People have studied gratitude journals. You can take a, a few minutes each night to write down the things you feel grateful for. There are gratitude meditations. You could Google sure. gratitude meditation MP3 and find a number of, of really wonderful people who have thought about how to lead you through a reflective gratitude exercise. And, you know, you might also wonder, your listeners might wonder, well, other than just a free lunch, like, why? What's the point? Maybe maybe I have enough free lunch. Well, gratitude is associated with lower blood pressure. People who are more grateful are more socially appealing. Other people like you more when you tend to be the kind of person who expresses gratitude more readily and more often. 
Um, you're better at managing setbacks. You're, you're not as vulnerable to post-traumatic stress if you're higher in gratitude. So it's just one of these things that, that you can practice. It's a skill. You can get better at it. You can just do it enough times that it emerges more spontaneously as the go-to thing to do. And it's a benefit in, in your own life, in your own health and well-being to your own happiness. And it's a boon to your relationships. And when you say thank you to each other, it, it, you might go do the car thing, even if you don't care about it, because it's so dang rewarding to have that moment of connection and understanding when your spouse shares that more specific uh, and expressive kind of gratitude with you. One of the most amazing experiences uh, I've ever had was on one of the silent meditation retreats I was on, and we were asked for 45 minutes in silence to just think about people who had done kindness to us of any kind, trivial, profound. And I thought, you know, this isn't going to, how can I do this for 45 minutes? I mean, this is going to be, eh, you know, my parents were nice to me. My <laughs> wife's a good person to me. I like my kid, whatever it is. I, you know, I thought this is not going to work so well. And, and the, the, the teacher said, um, start when you were young, the youngest you can remember, just work your way forward. And I was so overwhelmed by that experience. I don't think I could, you know, I'm not sure I can recommend it to listeners to try. It, it took a certain point in that retreat for me to be in a place where I could access that and feel it strongly. But when I came back from that retreat, I called some people who I had not talked to in a long time and just thanked them. And I'm so grateful for that, for that opportunity to express gratitude. And, and it's, a, um, it's an extraordinary thing to be appreciative of what other people have done for you. Uh, I think we grossly underestimate it, the, the magnitude. It's just we're, we're a little out of habit. There's this survey that the John Templeton Foundation conducted, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago now. And basically, they just asked, like, what do you think about gratitude? Is it important? Do you care about it? How often do you feel it? When do you feel it? How often do you uh, experience it? How often do you hear it from others? How do you think you are? Are you more grateful than you were 10 years ago? How do you think about society? And the finding that I'll share is that far none people felt like gratitude was very important. It was a virtue that they valued and that they aspired to. People generally described themselves as becoming increase, increasingly grateful over the course of their lives. They were getting more grateful. And they described society as diminishingly grateful. Yeah. Um, that's not possible, right? Mathematically, you can't have everybody. I'm speaking to an economist, so hopefully I'm not too off base. You can't have everybody increasing in gratitude, but society decreasing at the same time. <laughs> That's, that's not, that doesn't make sense. Um, but one possible explanation is that we're just not saying it to each other yeah. and we're not hearing it from each other. And that was also borne out in the data. Like people never thank their bosses at work, right? Never. People never thank um, wait staff who they give tips to, right? Yeah. There's all this kind of confusion between kind of a transactional uh, relationship and just a human relationship. And we sort of let the transactional by habit kind of overwhelm the underlying nature of, of, of 
just the benevolence behind people's contributions to one to the goodness in one another's lives. And so I think kind of unwinding that transactional mentality and just going for it, you know, dive in, say, thank you. Um, you uh, your experience sounds profound and wonderful. And I do hope that many of your listeners have a chance to experience something like that with some kind of careful context and guidance. Um, but I also think writing a letter to yeah. one of those people and calling them up and reading it to them or sending it to them by email, if, if that feels more comfortable, is is a very profound way to just get started, to launch your journey into experiencing more gratitude. I want to close with a personal question for you that before we started recording, you mentioned that you were living in the house you grew up in. That you were raised in Berkeley. You still live in Berkeley. That's an incredible connection that many Americans no longer have. They don't live in the place they grew up. Uh, but even more so in your case, you're not just living in the area you grew up, the neighborhood or the town. You're living in the same house. And we had Lamorna Ash on recently talking about some of the connections people have with a sense of place. Uh, certainly Chris Arnotti's episode of Dignity on his book Dignity um, – was about the fact that many people don't like to leave where they grew up, even though there might be better economic opportunity elsewhere, because they have a certain sense of self and meaning being close to the people they grew up with. I don't have that. I moved away from, I left home for college. I went, I went away for graduate school. I then lived in a bunch of places nowhere near my parents. I visited them from time to time, but you know, I don't have that kind of connection. And I suspect there is something deeply human in us that craves that, even though I convince myself that, oh, yeah, it's, I don't need that. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are as someone who thinks about happiness and satisfaction and has that gift slash outcome of your life that your your sense of place is very, very, very strong. Yeah. I think my sense of place is very strong, but interestingly, I connect it more with my family and my community than the physical location. Sure. Um, in research on well-being and the science of happiness, contextual changes often have a much um, less enduring impact on happiness levels. In other words, if I were to move to Washington, D.C. for a professor job that was more prestigious and higher paying than what I'm doing at UC Berkeley, my well-being might go up in, you know, a period of time, but with continued time, it would go back down to that regular kind of set point level, those contextual changes. And I consider place in many regards a contextual change. Um, that said, for me, again, I'm one of five children. My siblings all still live in the Bay Area also. We're very close to one another. My parents still live in Berkeley. So we have a lot of connection. And whenever I did face that opportunity to pursue a different career path or an extension of my current career path that took me elsewhere, that was the thing that kept me from going, was thinking, gosh, I'm going to have to raise my kids without their aunts and uncles and their grandmother and their grandfather 
um, and our neighbors, uh, who we have very close relationships with also. We have a very family-friendly block with lots of similar-aged kids. And I just, I mean, in, in some ways, I think there could have been great benefits to moving somewhere and meeting new people and exposing myself to the challenge of creating that community again. Um, and then in some ways, it was just easier to stay. And I was willing to take the, the blow to my professional career in order to have this enduring and sustained sense of community that, that I've gotten to enjoy. It's just, it's such a, it's such an important part of my life. My guest today has been Emiliana Simon-Thomas. Emiliana, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me. It's been such a fun conversation, and I really do hope your listeners um, get something out of it and, and figure that there's possibility to arrive at a, a more happy level of, of, of themselves if, if they so have that interest. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.